we're, uh, we're very fortunate to have the musicians that we have each week that, that lead us in worship. And uh, you guys notice Al is a new member of the band, so welcome him if you get a chance. Tell him he's doing all right. <laughs> and uh, Megan does a good job of leading them each week. And then I want to mention, I don't know if you guys know, we have a full worship team for the garden. And with the exception of Bruce, we're all bivocational. Uh, Steve Lenz helps out with the production side of things and, and the, uh, the program, and Mike Bassett does the sound and audio-visual stuff, Megan and myself, and, and so we have a, a full team of people who love you and love this congregation, and they serve uh, outside of their regular normal jobs, uh, and so we just want you to know we're, uh, we're so thankful for the opportunity to serve you. We'll remind you guys again, <clears throat> if you guys see these receptacles on the side here, uh, these offertory plates, the way we're going to be going forward, we're going to do a series on giving in a, in a little bit, in a few months, and uh, we want to begin to make giving part of our worship. So those things are on the side for you if you want to, during the worship time or during the announcements, anytime except during the sermon, you can give and go walk over and put your offering in the plate. We're going to be doing away with the buckets in the back at some point because we want to make giving a really actually, you all hear how giving is a part of work. We're going to make it an actual part of our worship. So you'll be hearing more about that <clears throat> as we go along. Now, the life of David has been a challenging series because in reality, a lot of people don't realize how much theology is in it. And I think I've made it pretty clear to you that the whole concept of this life of David is the fact that Satan hates David and wants to kill David. So that Christ will not come from the line of David. And in reality, what Satan is doing in by wanting to kill David is killing us. Because if he can disrupt the plan of God to make David the king of Israel, and Christ does not have a claim to David's throne, which is what was prophesied, then we don't have a savior, and therefore we don't have hope, we don't have redemption, we don't have salvation, we don't have justification. All we have is sin and death. And so as we look at that, that ethereal battle that goes on between David and Satan and God, it's make sure that you understand every time we come to a critical part of the story, it really is about whether or not that we are going to survive. I mean, it really is that crucial. Oh, we might live physically, but spiritually without Christ, we have no hope. None. And so we're skipping over 1 Samuel 30 just to give you a heads up what happened in 1 Samuel 30. David is sent home. If you guys remember, uh, the Philistines, are, judges, journal, uh, journals, judges, put them together. The Philistine generals did not want David to fight with them. So they sent him home. And when he went back home, he found out the Amalekites had raided his city and kidnapped his wives. And there was a big fight there. He kicked their butt, of course. He actually, what was interesting, though, is he asked God first, should I go and kill the Amalekites? And God says, this time, David, it's okay. And so David shows true repentance in that respect. He shows why he's a man after God's own heart. Unlike Saul, David, even though it would seem on the surface, he's certainly justified by going and killing all the Amalekites by raiding his city and kidnapping all his wives and everybody else's wives, taking them slave. He asks God, and God says yes. 
And it's clearly a manifestation of the fact that David is a man after God's own heart. So we skip over that passage, so know that that's what's going on in the background at the same time that 1 Samuel 31 is happening in the valley. I'm going to read you the passage. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel. Saul. And the men of Israel fled before the Philistines, and they all fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the son of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him. And he was badly wounded by the archers. And then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword, thrust it through my body, lest these Philistines come and kill me and then mutilate me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. He didn't want to kill the king. Therefore Saul took his own sword and he fell upon it. He killed himself. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. And thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor bearer, and all his men, on the same day, together. And when the men of Israel who were on the side of the valley, and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they all abandoned their towns and their cities and their homes, and they fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. This is getting tragic by the second, isn't it? And the next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, take all the stuff off the dead, their weapons, their clothes, their money, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Geboa. So they cut off Saul's head, stripped off his armor, and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to their people. They put his armor in the temple, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. And when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men rose and went at night and took the body of Saul off the wall and the bodies of his sons at Bethshan. And they came to Jabesh, and they burned them there, and they took their bones and buried them under the Tamaris tree in Jabesh. And they mourned for seven days. So this is the end of Saul. This is the time where David's chief rival... Remember, where David has been staying has been where? With the Philistines. And now his chief rival, Saul, is dead. And not only is Saul dead, all his sons who are capable of being king are dead. And so we see that the war breaks out. Israel suffers the defeat. Saul is cornered. The attack is raging. He is fatally wounded by the archers. Saul kills himself to escape torture and mutilation. The Jews abandoned the region. I mean, it's an utter, total defeat. Remember, Jonathan is also killed in this. Jonathan was David's best friend. The Philistines do the same thing to Saul in his head that the Jews did to Goliath. They cut off his head, stripped his armor, mounted it in the temple, and strung his body up. Remember, Saul has killed thousands, but David is 10,000. He ran around with the, the head of Goliath and everybody. They do the same exact thing to Saul. This is like revenge, very sweet revenge for the Philistines. And we know that brave men come and take the bodies down off the wall at night and burn them because, you know, they don't want their king to be defiled by these pagans. 
Now imagine, if you would with me, the feeling that Saul must be having as he's getting ready to go into this battle. A battle he knows is not going to come out well at all. What sort of things do you think were going through his mind as he marched to his fate? Because remember, he found out when he visited the witch at Endor that he was going to die in this battle. Man, I should have listened to God more. Man, I should have tried harder, but I did try. Man, what, could I, what did I do? Man, why did I try to kill David? Well, maybe I should have tried harder. To, I mean, just the confusion he must have been feeling in his heart. I feel bad for Saul, you know? Now, the question I have for you, does it seem like a joyous day for the enemy? I mean, it seems like Satan, like, you know, he's 1-0 today, right? I mean, it seems as though this is one of those times where it seems like evil prevails. Maybe God isn't as strong or as smart as we thought. I mean, the Philistines have come and wiped out Saul and his sons. But in reality, it's the enemy's worst day. In reality, it's his biggest defeat yet. See, David does not enter the fight, but in fact, David wipes out another enemy that later on, had the Amalekites been around, David would have been in trouble when he, you know, when David first became king, he became king of the house of Judah first, and there was a little bit of a civil war going on with, with Abner and some of the other, some of other Saul's sons, and it was kind of a mess, and David would have had to defend himself from the front and the rear, but what happens is, David is rescued from having to fight against the Philistines, he goes home, and God gives him permission to wipe out the Amalekites. So that part didn't go well for the enemy. Remember, his ultimate plan was not to kill Saul, right? That just like would have been, you know, like gravy. His goal was to kill David. The throne of Saul and its rightful, legal, competent heirs is wiped out. I mean, later on, there's one son left, Mephibosheth, but he's sort of a puppet, and he's really not a threat. He's not a serious man. Now, the nation is demoralized, right? They've lost their homes and stuff, and they're setting them up to receive a charismatic, bold, brilliant leader. I mean, so if you think through this whole process, right? This tragic end and defeat for God's people is the worst possible scenario for Satan. I mean, and oddly enough, it's the best possible scenario for us. Like, I don't know if you remember, a few, right before this life of David, I preached a sermon about angels in heaven, about how they look down and they watch this incredible drama of redemption unfold. And they cheer things on and, they, and there's suspense. I would guess, at this time, if you were watching this on TV in a movie you know, starring, uh, you know, somebody famous, and you're watching it on the big screen, you're probably looking and saying, man, what a tragic story. The angels in heaven are probably thinking, wow, God, how did you do this? It's amazing how you worked this out. All these people that you're going to save later, they would have been toast had Saul won, had David been fighting. 
Later on, David had to deal with the Amalekites. That could have been a disaster. Somehow, God, you've done it again. And this is a sad, tragic day, not for God's people, but for Satan. Do you see that? Because David is preserved, the throne is preserved, enemies are wiped out, and Satan's plan has been decimated. And so last week, the last couple weeks, we've talked about Romans 8, verse 28. And I'm going to add a few verses to it today. Matter of fact, I'm going to read the first part of it. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he now not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Because it's God who justifies. Now this passage It's not a promise that all things are going to be good. It's not a promise that all things are going to be rosy. What it promises is that all things, even things that look tragic, work together for good. It takes a supernatural gift of faith from God for us to wrap our heads around this and trust it as opposed to being those who might blame God for tragedy. You see the difference? The only way that you as a child of God can really grasp and trust and have comfort in tragedy is if you have been given the gift of faith to know all things work out for God's chosen. In my own personal life, when my daughter died in a car accident, a big tragedy... The only way that I knew that God would work it out is because he gave me the gift of faith. In your life, you're facing a disease or a death or some some sort of trauma in your life that's taken place. The only way that you can trust that all things work together for good is if you've been given this amazing gift of faith that we see in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and even that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, or else you brag. See, the plan is not just for you. I'm talking about any tragedy that you might go through. Saul's tragedy was bad. Jonathan's tragedy was bad. David had a lot of tragedy in his life. That plan was not just for them. It was for all of God's chosen. In verse 28 and 29 of Romans 8, he says, For the firstborn among many brothers. brothers." And then what's amazing is, as we go through these times of tragedy and turmoil and pain and grief, and if we have been given the gift of faith that enables us to see that God works things together, even what looks like a bloodbath is a victory, The process ends with us being made just like his son. 
He says in verse 29 and 30, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. So do you understand, in our life on this earth, everything that goes on in our life is a part of the drama of redemption? Everything that happens, the hardship you go through, the blessings you receive, all those things... And we know that some things work together for good. Is that what the scripture says? We know that 30% work together for good. We know that five out of 10 things work together. All things work together for good. But it takes unbelievable faith to really believe that. Some of us come from families, maybe, that have been dysfunctional, maybe for generations. Maybe some of us have struggled with abuse, Maybe we've been betrayed, left behind. That's tragic, and it's painful. But if God has called you, it all works out. I'm not minimizing it. Trust me, I know what real pain is. And I'm not trying to minimize it. But I'm trying to help you see there is a bigger ethereal picture going on. Because it's not about just us. I know in my own life, for example, in the midst of the tragedy that our family suffered, there have been many that have been blessed that never would have been blessed. There would be no nightlife. I wouldn't be here with you this morning. You wouldn't be blessing me with the love and and care and encouragement you guys give me every week. These are all blessings that never would have taken place. Bruce could have never loaned me 10 bucks this morning. with a little bit of complaining, but still. (laughs) Look at this part of the passage. This is in verse 34, the second part of Romans chapter 8, 28 through 39. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is it at the right hand of God who who is indeed interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. There's the example of the fact that all of our suffering goes together for the good. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than winners. Through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, demons, nor rulers, kings, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I don't think Paul could have used any more descriptors without it being a run-on sentence. That's pretty close, right? I mean, I'm trying to look. When I was looking at the Greek manuscript, it's almost like two paragraphs without a comma. And he just goes on. He's on a roll. Like he's, he's preaching through his penny saying, no, no death, no pain, not, nothing can separate us. <clears throat> so the question is, guys, who can condemn us? You got anything? Tell me. Is there somebody to condemn you? Let's go. Come on. Give me one. Who can be against you? Come on. Tell me. I I challenge you. Give me one thing according to Scripture that says, now if this happens, you're separated. Now if that happens, God can't work that out. 
if you do this and you fall this in this area, God can't save you from that. I mean, that's one, area, that's one, that's one weapon Satan has that, that it's like the ultimate nuclear weapon spiritually. And if he uses that, oh, he can be against you. Who can separate you from God? Can you give me one? List them. Could it be your sin? Well, he came to take away sin. Could it be your tragedy? Well, all things work together for good. Could it be your death? Well, in death there's life. The scripture pretty clearly teaches that. Famine? So it's just food that keeps you from God? What you got? I mean, this list looks a lot like Job's list, doesn't it? And if you're familiar with the story of Job, and we're going to do a sermon series on the book of Job in the distant future. And the story of Job is very similar to the story of David. The story of Job, when we mentioned this last week, the story of Job is not about what a great man Job was because his patience ran out pretty quick. The story of Job is God's ability, even in the midst of a direct attack from Satan, God kept him. God preserved him. Nothing could come against Job. Guys, who can beat us? You know, I don't know for sure. I haven't been through Job-like trials, but I've been through some pretty difficult stuff in the last 10 years. And there's other things that can happen that can be very painful. But sometimes I feel like I've taken the best shot. If anything was going to derail me from ministry and life and purpose, I think it would have happened. But nothing can beat me. It has nothing to do with me. It has to do with the fact that God has gripped me. God has called me. God is saving me. God is justifying me. And even in the midst of my trials and my hardship and my pain and my sufferings and especially my failures, nothing can condemn me, nothing can be against me, nothing can separate me, and nothing can beat me. Why? Because that's what God's Word told me. From my journal, as I reflect on what an utter failure Satan's plan was, even as it ended with a sad, painful tragedy for so many people, it reaffirms to me that nothing can happen to me that will derail God's end plan of having me, him, and my Jesus together in heaven with all the rest of his chosen. When I wrote this, this was kind of a, an epiphany for me. I get chills up my spine as I consider just how crazy the intensity of this truth is and how it's a truth that grips my soul. Not because I hold on so tight, but because God has me and his grip and no thing, no body, no circumstance, no tragedy, no pain, no failure will ever, ever change my direction, which is careening at light speed towards salvation justification and glorification and as strong as he is satan and his best laid plans and shots can do absolutely nothing about where i will spend eternity heavenly dad had this in his mind when he worked in david's life
And this is the concept that I'm trying to leave you with. The fact of the matter is, when God was working all this out in David's life, he had me specifically in mind. He had you specifically in mind. He had us specifically in mind. Because he foreknew us, he called us, he saved us, and he promised, he says, all things, even the really crappy, painful stuff, it's going to work out. Because I'm sovereign, I'm powerful, and I love you so much that I gave my own son, who, by the way, rose again, and therefore, nothing I'm not going to let anything waste what my son did on the cross for you.